Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Start your day tomorrow with Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR. Apple podcast reviewer Eve Bethel calls it concise and comprehensive. I listen to Up First every morning on my walk to work. It gives me a great summary of the top news stories to keep my eye on during the day and the upcoming week. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Tina Fey and Robert Carlock came up with the idea of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt with Ellie Kemper in mind. When they did present the premise to me that I was to play a cult victim who recently escaped and was making a new go of it, in New York, I wasn't sure if they were serious. And because they are so smart, I thought, this might be a test to see if I'm a dumb actor, if I'm like a (laughs) naive actor. I I don't know if they're being honest about about what the premise is because, you know, it's going to be on NBC. It sounded very dark. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Ellie Kemper. She'll tell me about moving to New York to pursue a career in comedy and drawing on the ridiculous privilege of her own college alumni listserv for some of her earliest material. I don't want to be a traitor, but the questions that would go around, it was like, you, this is embarrassing. And if, like, the government gets a hold of this, you, you are absolutely, like, fulfilling every stereotype out there. <laughs> then Flying Lotus, one of the most talented, unique music producers alive. He grew up here in L.A., listening to jazz, hip-hop, electronic music. And as he started making beats on drum machines and samplers, he learned pretty early on what the key to finding his voice was. I like to mix as much natural stuff in with the synthetic as I can. And just For me, it gives a lot of texture. There's, there's, with enough texture, you don't have to have a lot of like fake sounds. Finally, I'll tell you about the MC who felt like every 90s hip-hop kid's older brother. It's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is the actress Ellie Kemper. She's the star of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. We talked last year. If you haven't seen it, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt has a pretty unusual premise. A woman emerges from a Midwestern bunker. She's been held captive there by a cultish kidnapper. She and her fellow captives are national news, so she moves to New York, the one place she can think of where no one will care. It's a strange, dark idea to make into a sitcom. It's also one of the funniest shows on TV. One of the big reasons is Ellie Kemper, who plays Kimmy. She's so unbelievably sunny in the face of any obstacle. She can sell any joke. And Unbreakable has some pretty crazy jokes. It's been nominated for a ton of awards since it debuted in 2015. Six Critics' Choice Awards, three SAG Awards, nine Emmys. Ellie just got her second nomination for her role, actually. She's up for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series. Here's a bit from the show's most recent third season. In this scene, Jacqueline, played by Jane Krakowski, and Lillian, played by Carol Kane, are both running for the same neighborhood council seat. As we listen in, they're each trying to get Kimmy on their side. Okay, now listen, you're going to vote for me tomorrow, aren't you, dear? Of course. But if you vote for her, she's going to stop me from bringing clean water to this neighborhood. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. That's why you need to vote for any candidate but Lillian. No! 
if this yuppie b- and her yuppie boyfriend clean up the sludge front, boy, yuppies are moving. And you know what yuppies eat? Brussels sprouts. Yuck. And ice cream that tastes like lavender. No, that's a smell. But you'll have the most beautiful new waterfront with ducks in it. Ducks that have babies. Aw, how many? It doesn't matter. Our rent will be jacked up so high, we'll probably have to move to Hart Island where they bury all the unclaimed bodies. Now I forget, do you like sleeping in a giant pit full of skeletons? You know I don't. Ellie Kemper, it's so great to have you on Bullseye. I'm such a fan of your show. It is so great to be here, Jesse. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a huge fan of yours. That's probably not true, but I appreciate your graciousness. It's true. Um, So what is it like to know that your on-screen talents inspired these brilliant comedy writers, uh, Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, to write the most brutal, nightmarish version (laughs) of a fish-out-of-water story ever? What it reads in my face that suggests bunker victim, I don't <laughs> know. I, maybe they saw something I don't, you know, readily recognize. The writers had an idea for a show, which was that I was to play a cult victim who recently escaped and was making a new go of it in New York. I wasn't sure if they were serious. And because they are so smart, I thought, this might be a test to see if I'm a dumb actor, if I'm like a <laughs> naive actor. I, I don't know if they're being honest about, about what the premise is because it, you know, it's going to be on NBC. It sounded very dark. Um, I like your idea that you can't quite tell uh, whether they're too smart for you. As a graduate of Princeton University, who did some, but I don't think completed graduate work at Oxford, did I think not you're complete. qualified. I think you're qualified to determine whether or not they're putting you on. <laughs> that is kind of you. I, I'm, I'm going to replay that in my mind the next time I'm questioning my own intelligence. <laughs> but these guys had just written 30 Rock and had, uh, you know, pulled that off seemingly effortlessly and, and, and knew a lot more about creating a television show than I did. And I just, you know, at first blush, I do think that does not seem... No, it seems like a terrible idea. Well, just certainly for a network show. Yeah, how, was, how are they going to pull this off? This was supposed to be on NBC. Absolutely. And so I, I, you know, once I read the pilot, I saw how they were able to make that very dark premise into a comedy in a way that I think only Tina and Robert could. I think in the wrong hands, it would have turned out very differently and probably terribly. Um, so thank goodness that they were the ones at the helm. And um, I don't know how they... Did that? I think it's by focusing on what happens, you know, after the the darkness. I guess without being too dramatic about it. But yeah, I I, I wasn't sure what to do at first, and I don't know what what is it. You you're looking at my face. Is there something? Is it is it? It's large. I don't. It's seen a lot. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think what I'll tell you. You were already on. Uh, you had been on the office. Mm-hmm. Um, and done a wonderful job and done lots of things that, you know, folks in the comedy community knew you from. You're exceedingly uh, gracious and pleasant. Um, And I think they must have just wondered, uh, what is wrong with this woman? You know (laughs) what I mean? Like, that was the inciting question for them. Possibly, yes. And and to be clear, I am not always exceedingly gracious. So, so, (laughs) I was about to say, so thank you for saying that. No, but... But obviously, that is uh, um, 
I've, I've played a lot of characters, I think, who are upbeat, uh, naive, cheerful. Are you ever like a jerk? I don't think so. And especially if I'm tempted to be a jerk now, I feel like um, what if that person has seen the show and then you'll be embarrassed ten times as much. So I, I, I completely admit that that's a very vain reason not to get mad, but it works. So What about a pat, weird, passive-aggressive Midwestern jerk? Oh, with a smile, you mean? Yeah, like a secret jerk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think, I think that happens all the time. <laughs> she said with a lovely smile. Smile, yeah. Well, yeah, because that, that uh, yeah, I think you can get away with that in a way that's satisfying to you, but not <laughs> the other person isn't, you know, totally aware. Does that make sense? Yeah. I've heard you say that you would be uh, you would be delighted to move back to St. Louis at some point in your life. I think we've just learned why. You, you <laughs> I want... can be the biggest <laughs> be I, no, but I yeah, and just go around laying my little passive aggressive snark on anyone who crosses my path and feel so. Go to bed at night just feeling satisfied. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I I don't think I'm. I hope. Well, I don't know. Yeah, sometimes I can be a jerk. I mean, right? One of the things that one of the things that uh, is so lovely about the character is that you know, in any fish out of water comedy like this, is is to some extent about the tenacity of uh, the protagonist. You know, in this situation that they don't know and they don't control, and you know that they're they can still be good and uh, win our hearts or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's such an absurd show, but there are these moments where she narrows her eyes, you know? Yeah. I love that about Kimmy because I think I think what's impressive about – and not to sound too actory, but I am an actor, so I'm going to sometimes sound actory. I think that uh, – that's my favorite part about her is that she is undeniably girly. And, I mean, you can just – at first glance, I mean, she's she wears bright pink colors. She, you know, has long hair. She likes jewelry. She's a girly girl. And without contradiction, she's also this incredibly resilient woman sort of of steel. And so I, I, I think that is what carried her through such a horrific time, which is – and I don't know if that's something you can acquire or if it's just innate, but she is uh, – she has a tenacity, I think, that is unmatched. And so – I, I sort of love it when the story calls for some sort of injustice or unfairness that Kimmy witnesses because she has no tolerance for it. And she fights she fights for it, uh, sometimes to a fault, but um, she isn't pushed around. And I think you see that in the flashbacks to the bunker even. As, as funny as they can sometimes be, there is a toughness there and an unwillingness to sort of accept what has been thrust upon her that she's fighting through. What was it like for you when you moved to New York after school? Wasn't. Because you didn't go to Oxford with the idea that you were going to be a comedian. Well, no, I didn't. And in retrospect, I almost wish I had gone straight to New York after college to start taking improv classes and doing stuff there. Because I think I I went to an, a complete another year of school thinking, I'm not exactly sure what it is that I want to do, so I'll keep going to school. And then um, I think things sort of clarified in my brain over that year. So when I came to New York – you know, I grew up in St. Louis. I think any move to New York is going to be a little jarring just because I don't think there's any other city like it in the United States. And um, In your case particularly because there's no Provel cheese on the pizza. Oh, yes. You know Provel. <laughs> is the, what is Provel? It's I don't provolone. know. It's like cheese 
It's a cheese goo. It's a cheese goo, but it's very tasty, and I, I will defend Provel to the end. So, so I'm on record saying that. But yeah, there was no Provel to be found in New York, and I do not remember feeling worried or scared. And I think that's because my parents were very supportive of this idea to go to New York. My dad, I remember saying, you should try it for a few months. And, and anyone out there who has tried acting or any art for pursuing any art for a few months knows that it takes you know, yeah. much longer than a few months. But nonetheless, they, it's not like they discouraged me from doing this. And I – He just suggested a, f- a few months acting, a few months banking and see which one you choose. <laughs> yes. Just weigh, weigh them both. See what a comes out. A few months monging fish. <laughs> Try it all. Yeah. Ellie, you're young. Yeah. Get out there. Yeah. And so uh, tossing pies, pizza <laughs> right. dough. I don't know. It's New sure. York. New York. Tossing pizza pies. Tossing yeah. some pizza pies. But also I did feel, and this is unusual, I felt very confident in my ability to do improv. So Because I had been a member of my improv group in college, like probably a lot of us all were yeah. members of improv groups in college. And I did feel like, okay, well, I know I can improvise and I'm there was no long-term plan. I don't think it was like I want to get on a sitcom. I want to be a leading lady uh, in movies or I want to go on to direct things. There was nothing that thought out. It was more just like I'm going to enroll at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater and the People's Improv Theater, take classes, and then try to get on a house team there. So, no, I, do, I strangely only remember feeling excited and – Oh, no. I, you know what? I think I'm watching it a little bit because I just – my mind just flashed back to like a Thursday afternoon in my apartment unemployed. And we just ordered Chinese food and in the middle of the day, it was so depressing. <laughs> Sorry. So I don't want to paint it like – it was just so fun and I was excited. There were a lot – It's it, you are a li- – you feel a little aimless. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Ellie Kemper. She plays the titular character on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix. I actually have a clip here of what might be called one of your first films. Um, it's called Man Under the Stairs. Yes! I'm so happy you have this. <laughs> I love can you, this. Can you give us a little context for oh, this? Yes. Um, my parents were doing construction in their house, namely on the stairs. And they were they were fixing <laughs> the stairs. And so my, my best friend and next-door neighbor, Katie Purcell, and my younger sister, Carrie, and I – we had already been making videos, as I'm sure a lot of people our age were, and we decided to make a horror movie about a man who actually lived under the stairs. Carrie was to play that man, and um, that's the basic premise. He starts uh, sort of terrorizing us. Um, that's what the movie, that's what the film uh, is about. Well, let's take a listen. <laughs> okay. Katie, what's wrong? I know you won't believe me. Warren, I just saw a man under the stairs. Oh, a man under the stairs? Give me a break. I think you've been no. in school too long. I'm serious. You have to believe me. Go see for yourself. Have you talked to mom about this? No, I just got up here. I just got home from school. A man under the stairs? Yes. I'll check it out. Remember thinking, this is your moment, Ellie. 
do not mess this up. And I... Mom spaghetti. <laughs> you only got one shot. And I am overacting so bad. But... Do you know what? During all, we would put on a lot of plays and make a lot of videos like that. And I was always the director because I think I, I felt I'm a control freak. And I always was the only actor to ever mess up and, and flub lines. But I, but I, and I would kick myself. Well, afterwards. I feel like between your filmmaking history yeah. and the fact that one of your high school theater teachers was John Hamm. Yeah. You were pretty much destined for stardom. <laughs> yeah, too. It was like they laid the roadmap before my, you know, my eyes and I just had to take the car on the route, Jesse. <laughs> I have some I have some friends who were uh friends with John Hamm mm-hmm. and um he seems like a really delightful man yes. uh, from from everything I've heard and yeah. seen. Um but I think I might be afraid to talk to him. <laughs> because he's he's so even when he's being goofy, which he's great at mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still kind of uncomfortable with how handsome he is. Oh, you and me both, my friend. <laughs> and also, by the way, can you get out, even though I knew him, not to brag, yeah. but I knew him before he was Don Draper. Right. But even when I am looking at him as a person or as a different character or as, I guess those are the only two options, right. um, I see Don Draper. And Don Draper frightens me. To yeah. be honest. So I think that I, I'm with you on that. And in fact, when he was – so he played the reverend in for those in season one of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And I was so nervous – for any number of reasons, I was very – maybe I shouldn't use the word nervous. I was – there was a lot of adrenaline in my body when we – especially the first day we filmed our scenes together because not only did he used to be my teacher, I couldn't get out of my head that I'm acting in a scene with Don Draper – and the whole thing was exhilarating, intimidating, and um, – now I sound like Johnny Cochran. Exhilarating, intimidating, and uh, delightful. So it was, a, it was a very exciting day, I guess. I can only imagine the intimidation. I acted alongside – I'm not trying to brag here. Yeah, no, don't. I acted alongside – no, I'm going to. Oh, no, no, you're, you're not bragging. Oh, OK, great. <laughs> uh, I acted alongside Bob Einstein, a.k.a. Super Dave Osborne once. And I we found that to be profoundly intimidating. <laughs> I was like, that's Super Dave right there. That's the thing. I can't separate the person from the character, right? Even though you knew him as like a 22-year-old or 23-year-old. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But but you are correct that he is delightful. He he is one of – okay, so he is from St. Louis and I think everyone there – is just has crowned he, rightfully so the prince of St. Louis. He just everyone. Yeah, sorry, Sklar brothers. Yeah, sorry There's guys. A There's town. a new Ham King in town, and he. Uh, and every <laughs> is that his title. Yeah, Ham King. Is it, was that already the title before he became the Ham King? You no, know, were was, the Sklars the Ham King previously, yeah, or Stan Musial in the 1950s yep, and 60s? But yes, John Goodman briefly uh-huh. the Ham King, and uh, but no, but then suddenly, and and I guess very you know fortunately, John Ham became the Ham King, right. which was like oh well. Sure. A good fit. Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, he. Miss Piggy was the Ham King briefly, which fit in some ways, but less so in other uh, more ways. More tragically, yes. Yeah. People were a little ups. You know, there was some controversy right. over her title, but right. it, that's what it's called, the Ham King. Mm-hmm. So we can't help it if you right. are dubbed that. <laughs> we're learning a lot about St. Louis. It's very between the Prevel and the Ham King. There's a I'm lot. I'm pretty much out of things I know about St. Louis. Cardinals. 
I already said Stan Musial. Oh, you said that. You already yes, you got just Stan Musial. I already got that. Okay, St. Louis Blues. I've been in the Gateway Arch. Oh, you. What did you? I went in the scared? elevator. I was terrified. Now, see that I. Why are you it's, claustrophobic? I'm afraid of heights. Yeah, and the elevator there is rickety. Up but up. I will say that the uh, the Gateway Arch, I have very strong positive feelings for. I feel like along with the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. It's uh, one of America's uh, man-made monuments that really delivers. I just oh, think it's amazing. Well, I am thrilled to hear you say that because I feel the same way. Whenever I'm flying home to St. Louis and you are flying over that or by it, I think it's I think it's gorgeous. I also highly recommend the uh, documentary about it, Monument to a Dream. It's really good. I've seen it several times. And you are at the edge of your seat wondering, are, is this last slab going to fit? Because it's like the heat – it was a hot summer day and the heat is contracting or expanding or one of them. And it was like uh, not a certain thing that the arch was going to be completed. Anyway, it was completed. You've been up in it. <laughs> spoiler but it, I'm sorry, Spoiler. They finished it. <laughs> Again. Ham King. The arch was briefly the Ham King. Oh, really? Yep. Yeah. Despite its lack of sentience. Yep. <laughs> yes. That's how – that's how – was it able to complete its duties? Well, no. I think I think very quickly once they realized. Um, oh well, you they know. tried to put it in the back of a convertible it, for right. for St. Patrick's Day parade, yep. and, and they're like, "Oh, this isn't going to work." Sorry. Yeah. So so then it went. You know, it went. The title was passed on, which is fine. So in a lot of ways, for a St. Louis and like yourself, mm-hmm. uh, St. Louisianan, St. Louisan, like as for a St. Louis and <laughs> like yourself, the Gateway Arch is bittersweet because. On the one hand, it's a majestic monument. On the other hand, it really disappointed us, Ham King. <laughs> That's true. But I think you have to take the good with the bad. You know, I think it would be naive to think that the Gateway Arch could deliver on all fronts. You know, it is only a monument. That's true. So it's, it's fallible. I'll continue my conversation with Ellie Kemper after a break. We'll talk about class, wealth, and comedy. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for top talent with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Let ZipRecruiter's powerful technology match your job to the right candidates and use their simple dashboard to find the right hire. That's why 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash first. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Ellie Kemper. She stars on Netflix's Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. She just earned her second Emmy nomination for her role. We talked last year. Was there ever a point in your career where you felt pretty settled on the idea that you had made the wrong decision? Oh, settled on the idea that I made the wrong decision. Um, Yes, yes. I had just performed a one-person show at the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York on 26th Street, and uh, I think like 10 people were in the audience, including my then-boyfriend, Michael. And so that's – no one laughed. It was horrible. It was silent throughout. And I had done the show before, and it had been fine. And for whatever reason, it was a horrible, horrible night. 
And it's, first of all, embarrassing to be on stage and trying to make people laugh and then nobody laughs. It's it's doubly embarrassing when, like, your beloved is there and you have made a fool of yourself in front of him. So I remember walking home with him and I was just sobbing because I was so embarrassed and I felt like I – I'm not qualified to be doing any of this, and there's your evidence, and why am I even trying this? And I I think first and foremost, I was just so embarrassed. And we went home and watched um, – I can't remember which Tracy Ullman show, something with Tracy Ullman. And I felt – and I, I felt like so much better. And I should have felt worse because it's like, oh, well, you'll never be as good as Tracy Ullman. But I felt comforted thinking like, okay, I'm going to try to work harder and be more like that. Uh, rather than wallow in this shame. But I felt profoundly bad that night, just feeling like you don't have the chops for this, and this is mortifying. That's a bad feeling to be that embarrassed. And then someone wrote about it. This is back when, like, blogs were just beginning, I think. And it was so vicious and mean and just, uh, I think, unnecessarily cruel I don't know. It was one of the 10 people in that audience felt the need to go home and, and write a horrific review. Very, very, again, very cruel. So that that felt bad. <laughs> See, I laughed again. But that felt very bad. Do you think that that review is still on the Internet? <laughs> it might be. We would have to look hard for it. But I think why would it be erased? Right. Yeah. And in those moments, you always want to respond to it. Like, well, you tried doing what I did, but you can't respond to that stuff. Well, you're only going to get yourself deeper. Oh, right. Do you think Michael wrote it? <laughs> Is he hiding behind a potted plant? In well, here? I mean, you haven't answered the question why he wasn't laughing. I didn't answer. I, I really do. Um, I don't fault him for this. I think if you're the only one laughing in an audience... Not only is it distracting, it draws more attention. It almost would be seen as a pity laugh. But I guess it does beg the question, well, why Why is this a question? Why wasn't he just naturally laughing? But I'll tell you why. He had seen it before. All right. There's no good answer. He should have been laughing. He should have been laughing hard. He, is, he will be paying for that for the rest of his days. I'm so sorry that I appear to have driven the two of you to divorce. It's okay. I'll move back to St. Louis. It'll be fine. <laughs> I read a great piece that you wrote uh, years and years ago for McSweeney's, the premise of which was this private school alumni uh, email newsletter or email uh, – what do you call that? Email group. Yeah, like an um, – Email list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, emailing about where to find a good maid in Manhattan. Yeah. Um, that uh, you know spirals into the kind of privilege insanity that you would expect. And um, you know that's one of the big – subject matters on Kimmy Schmidt, too, Mm -hmm. that Jane Krakowski's Mm -hmm. character is constantly managing her perception Mm -hmm. as a rich person. And uh, your character is uh, just thinks it's amazing that everyone has their own bed or something, you know? Right. (laughs) And um, uh, I wonder if your experience both being a uh, growing up in a banking family <laughs> and also like going to Princeton where like some of the people that you knew in New York when you moved to New York were other people that were like 24-year-olds that wore suspenders, <laughs> not hipster suspenders, like banker suspenders yes. and ties, you know, like yes. loosened ties out. At, but you see these people in New York. They don't exist in other places. No, think, only but, New like, York. Yeah, but like these like young guys that work in finance that like loosen their tie and yes. go to a bar. Yes. 
If that made you kind of extra sensitive to those those kind of tensions and differences? Yeah, I think that that's um, – of course you let – let me be thoughtful about this answer. I think, first of all, that McSweeney's piece was inspired by our actual Princeton listserv, which, <laughs> which I didn't really have to even make up anything because I, I, I sort of was – and this is genuine. I was just sort of like shocked by the the <laughs> – I don't want to be a traitor. But the questions that would go around, it was like, you, this is embarrassing. And if, like, the government gets a hold of this, you, you are absolutely, like, fulfilling every stereotype out there. Government. So the government they, office. They're the first. On class NSA. and wealth. Yep. They're going straight in. What are those jerks writing about? If, if Bernie gets elected, we're in trouble. <laughs> watch out. They can still unearth those emails. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they haven't gone anywhere. So watch out, all you privileged people out there. But I think that, um, of course, everyone is born into whatever circumstances they're born into. And uh, I have been given a tremendous amount of uh, good fortune in my life. And so I feel like uh, all the more reason to um, – there is all the more reason, I think, to uh, work hard and be grateful because uh, I sort of had a leg up. I, I did. I hope that's not I, – I don't mean to sound um, smug. It's just sort of the truth. So I'm acknowledging that. But I do think the the way you conduct yourself, of course, is that much more important. I don't know if it's that much more important. Everyone sh- should conduct himself well. But I think um, being able to uh, keep a – I don't know, a grounded – uh, view of it all in a, in a way that's where you recognize, okay, not you may have had advantages that other people didn't have. You may have had certain privileges other people didn't have, but just to, uh, I don't know, experience the world enough, read enough, watch enough that you do have an understanding of how the world works. Um, I feel like I've led you into a minefield here. I'm feeling bad <laughs> about it because I think you're so great. No. I just I, want you to know that. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I just want to be careful with my word choice. My gosh. I can't have people writing in. <laughs> oh, they'll write in. This is they'll public writing. You don't have to be that, worried about that. That, that blogger, that blogger is going to come forward first of all and be like, "I didn't even know she came from a banking family, and her one-person show was smut." Oh boy, he's going to resurrect that guy. Um, when before before we came in here, we talked about how deeply I feel about a couple of jokes from. Uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is a show that has by far the best jokes on television. And I'm, I'm sure that you're a joke aficionado. Are there any are there any little things that have kind of that you're still holding in your heart? This is the terrible thing that happens with me with this show is because it is so dense and so chock full of jokes that instead of Titus Burgess and I were just talking about this. Thinking about the last season where we're like, what happened? Like it all seems like a haze now. And we don't know until we watch the show again what happened. But I think that there's <laughs> – do you know it took me more than a – this is bad, it, than, longer than it should have. For When Jacqueline in season one says, um, at 10 a.m. then come get me up, but don't wake me up. And I, I was like I, – I finally said, wait, Jane, are you like – I don't understand that. Are you supposed to be unconscious? What? She's like, no, I think I'm just getting ready, but I'm still asleep. <laughs> oh, okay. That, I got that now. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's too many zingers. They're, they're joke machines. <laughs> and I also, as I mentioned to you before that, 
I don't always get the jokes. And I sometimes I Google them and I know that I, I really am not that dumb. I mean, <laughs> a, on occasion, I have to Google a reference. And sometimes even Google does a special Ivy League Google. Yes, Ivy League Google. Yep, that is. I got it from the listserv. Uh-huh. The government's going to find out about it soon. All right, so its <laughs> right. days are numbered. Don't worry. <laughs> but sometimes Google doesn't even know, and I'm like, okay, well now I don't feel as dumb. Like I, I can't catch the reference. If Google do not know, then I, I do not feel as bad. <laughs> Ellie Camper, I am, I am so grateful that you that you came in to be on the program. Uh, what a joy to get to talk to you, and uh, congratulations on this show, which is just so funny. Thank you so much for having me. I feel the exact same way, and I feel very grateful to you for having me on it. So thank you, Jesse. This was a lovely chat. She said with a smile. (laughs) Ellie Kemper from last year. She and the rest of the folks on Kimmy Schmidt have been nominated for three Emmys this year. If you haven't seen the latest season yet, you can check it out now. It is hilarious. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up on the show... Flying Lotus. I talked with Flying Lotus in my apartment studio back in 2010. At the time, he just released his third record, Los Angeles. Born Stephen Ellison, he was at the head of a burgeoning beat-making scene here in L.A. that would eventually leave a huge, lasting impact on pop and hip-hop. Over the course of five records and dozens of collaborations, Flylo has created lush, kind of psychedelic soundscapes, a little disorienting sometimes, but always gripping. Now he's directed his first-ever feature film. It's called Cuso. It's probably one of the most intense, and if I am honest with you, gross movies to come out in the last few decades. Like, folks at Sundance walked out of the theater. If you made a word cloud of words used to describe it, uh, pretty large on that word cloud would be oozing and gassy. Anyway, Flylo's most recent LP is 2014's You're Dead. Let's take a listen to Never Catch Me from the album with Kendrick Lamar on vocals. Flying Lotus, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you grew up here in Southern California, yeah, right? Yeah, I grew up in the Valley. Most most of my time spent out there. When you started making beats, when you were, a, a, what, a young teenager, like 14 yeah. or 15? Yeah. Um, who did you imagine yourself being? Did you imagine yourself being Aphex Twin, or did you imagine yourself being Battle Cat or something? I, I imagined myself being Dr. Dre. You know, he was my hero when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, he was this incredible producer who got to chill in the background and, and make music for all these people who wanted to be out there, you know. And I, I was I was a background guy, you know. I still feel like I am. I don't really want to be in the mix like that. You know, so I, that that just really appealed to me that you can you can like make this hip hop music, but you don't have to be on stage and stuff. But I ended up on the stage. <laughs> and from what I hear, you're somewhat energetic on stage as well. I, I have fun. I have fun. It's <laughs> it's um, it's a great opportunity to play your music for people like in that kind of space. You know, it's like all the things I w- try to work out in the studio, I get to play it for people and. Sometimes they enjoy it. 
So Dr. Dre makes a very different kind of music from what you make. Yeah. Um, when you imagined yourself as Dr. Dre, were, <laughs> were you imagining yourself like, you know, sampling Funkadelic and just dropping heavy beats and having somebody rhyme about Absolutely. different people that they've had sex with and or shot? Absolutely. Absolutely. That was, that was where I was at when I was younger. You know, I, was, I just... That's all there was, you know, that I didn't really think of it as like, oh, maybe I can make instrumental hip hop and, and, you know, try and flip the, the game into some electronic thing. I never thought about it like that. It just kind of happened, you know, but originally when I was young, it was, that was all there was. It was, it was, you know, this whole West Coast sound that was invading everybody's uh, ears and I was just, I was really into it and it was really inspiring. It was it was melodic hip hop. You know, it was the first time I had heard, you know, string sections and and beats, hip hop beats before. And it was the first time that I could hear people playing in melodies instead of just sampling like one bar or something. You know, so it was it was a great thing for me. It was just I fell in love with hip hop around then. I think. What was the first piece of equipment that you made a beat on? Um. Some rolling keyboard, I don't know. It was my cousin's keyboard, but I, eventually I got this uh, another rolling machine called the MC505 Groovebox. Had all these sounds that you can, you know, these preset sounds that you could flip and turn into loops and stuff. And I made like 200 beats on that thing, and <laughs> it was just to me, it was just like a better version of Game Boy, you know. So I, I was into it. It was sort of Super Mario paint, I would yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What kind of music were you making on this thing? What kind of sounds did it make? Uh, you know, it was just it had that's pretty good sounds in it actually. You could you could change them a little bit. They didn't it didn't have to be exactly like the factory presets, but um, I was just making hip hop stuff like really short loop stuff, like four bar loops and dropping parts out, thinking about in terms of like rap beats and that sort of thing. Were you making beats for people? Did you have friends who were emceeing, or was yeah. it something that you were doing at home by yourself? Well, you know, mostly by myself. And then, you know, I'd I'd go to Guitar Center and be messing around with stuff, and they these rappers would see this young kid making beats, and like, what? What's up with this kid? You know, and rappers, some, the, all the rappers that hang out at the Guitar Center all yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And like some people I'd meet through friends of friends. Oh, you got to hear this dude; he's sick. And then. um you know, we get together and I make a beat, but there was there was never really really any chemistry in, in that. It was just it was just fun. It was just that's all it was for me. I didn't really think about it like trying to make a lifestyle or career out of it. It was just it was something to do. You, you studied uh, film and art in college. Yeah. Did you had you abandoned the idea of, or had you not come upon the idea of making your life in music? Yeah, I didn't really think it was that was my calling for a while because, you know, again at the time where I when where I grew up, it just I didn't really think that there was a place for me. You know, I just the way the the state of hip hop was just like it was all hyphy and just dirty South stuff that I wasn't really interested in. But I kind of got into the, like Aphex Twin and Square Pusher and Autech or that kind of thing, and. um and it was really inspiring again, and I just started getting back in the machines and and going for it. These these are um, these are largely European 
um, electronic music act. Yeah. What was it about that music that that inspired you? It was a little deeper and darker than uh, than the stuff that I was hearing on the radio, and it felt like they were trying to say something. And a lot of the stuff was instrumental too, so it was it was uh, very powerful in that way, where I was just like imagining different universes and stuff through their music. Yes, I knew that you uh, that a lot of your music had been used in. Um, uh, on Adult Swim, the Cartoon <laughs> Network. That, you know, we've we've had many cartoon creators from Adult Swim on this show. Oh yeah, and um, and what I didn't know was that that was the that was essentially your first commercial success hmm. as a musician. Yeah, tell me about how you got your music onto this you know late night block of weird comedy shows for stoners oh man I, well you know i was i was living in my mom's house at the time <laughs> and uh you know i they they run all these bumpers and stuff and they a lot of stuff sounded really familiar you know it was like a lot of stuff that you know i, I worked at stone's throw at the time and i i'd heard this is a, a hip-hop record label mostly yeah. hip-hop record label here in los angeles yeah i worked for stone's throw and they uh you know they they'd have a lot of their music featured on these little adverts and uh, I was oh man that sounds like something I'm, I'm into and one time they ran an ad that they were saying oh you think you got some tracks where are they at and here send them over here and let's let's do something and uh I didn't really I didn't really think they were gonna care about my stuff but my mom was there too and she was like you better send them some tunes and uh yeah I sent them some stuff and they hit me up for a track list and I've been doing it ever since because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan and it's just a lot of fun still. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Flying Lotus. We talked in 2010. talk a little bit about your process and how you construct music because your your music has such a distinctive sound i think it's difficult for people to you know it's difficult for people to imagine how it's made it sort of sure. seems like it was just birthed whole out of some kind of crazy music space whale or something <laughs> um what do you start with i don't know it depends because uh, lately lately it's been starting with piano i've been playing piano a lot and just going from there and then figuring out things along the way. But, you know, sometimes it starts with a sample, sometimes it starts with the drums, and then, you know, time will go, and then I find more elements to put into it. And it's never really done until it's released. That's how I feel. Because it goes through several stages, you know. The, the bulk of it usually happens within 20 minutes, <laughs> you know, and then all the other stuff is the icing and the sprinkles, you know. But, uh yeah, it, it's different every time. I, I try not to get into a set way of working because it. I think you can hear it. I can hear it after a while. I'm like, oh, that's when I just when I got that micro chord. Okay, that's awesome. All right now, 
I'm I'm trying to get into. Again, I'm kind of playing around with the piano stuff more, my acoustic piano. We'll have more from Flying Lotus after a break. He's a brilliant musician in his own right. He's also nephew to Alice Coltrane, the amazing harpist and wife to John. He'll tell me what it was like growing up around, I mean, you know, I guess just like the coolest people that ever lived. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. If you're a coffee lover, don't worry. So are the folks at Stoke. They're all about the perfect balance of bold but smooth taste. It's not too sweet. It's the kind of stuff coffee lovers dream of. They slow brew it, like all the best ideas. Find it in the refrigerated juice section. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Look at you go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Flying Lotus in a second. But before we do that, let's take a look at Pop Rocket. Every week, Pop Rocket gives you a panel conversation about pop culture that is brilliant, fascinating, and brilliantly funny. It's a little bit like Bullseye if Bullseye was a chat show instead of an interview show. Our host is Guy Branham, the stand-up comic and host of Talk Show, The Game Show on True TV. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week, we're going back to school. On Pop Rocket, we're going to be talking about adult education. That includes film and TV about uh, people who should not be going to school, going back to school. Um, and also the, the films, TV, and other pieces of culture that schooled us and taught us a little bit more about ourselves. Sounds like a good one. Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Flying Lotus. We talked in 2010. Let's talk about a let's talk about a specific song, say from Cosmogramma. Do you do you want to just just pick one? What do you have a particular favorite or one you'd like to share with? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's play "Dance of the Pseudonymph." Okay, let's hear a little bit of "Dance of the Pseudonymph" from my guest, Flying Lotus's LP, Cosmogramma. <laughs> Thank you. 
so we heard a lot of sounds on that record. Where do they mm-hmm. Where do they come from? Oh boy, they come from all sorts of sources. I try to record natural sounds as much as I can. I try to record samples from records as much as I can. When you say natural sounds, are you talking about instruments, or are you going out with a microphone and putting yeah, it up to a yeah. blue jack? Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely. I have a, a hand recorder. I try to record a bunch of stuff, and again, I, I like to mix as much natural stuff in with the synthetic as I can. And just for me, it gives a lot of texture that you you know it. There's there with enough texture, you don't have to have a lot of like fake sounds because the the natural textures are, are just so rich and, and they fill up so much space. It, I don't need drums, man. I, I I've been really enjoying making ambient music lately because just that texture tells so much. The texture will will say so much. It speaks to you without any kind of rhythmic stuff. Um. I want to play a remix that you did of uh, this Lil Wayne song called uh. Millie. Um And this was this, it was a song that had a really uh, powerful and very minimal beat. And um, for that reason, I think, and the fact that Lil Wayne was, was and probably still may be the hottest rapper in the world and above great rapper as well, was a huge fodder for remixers. Yeah. That was a remix of the Lil Wayne song, A Millie, by my guest, Flying Lotus. Tell me how you approached remixing this hip-hop record that just has such a, in its original form, has such a hard and specifically hip-hop aesthetic. Yeah. um, I'm not going to lie. The first few times I heard the original song, I didn't like it. And that was why I remixed it. It's because I was just, I was kind of frustrated with, it's a minimal thing, but eventually I started. I learned to love it, and I learned to love a lot of that stuff he's doing. And uh, for me, it's just it's just kind of like I like to do it for the people who who are curious. You know, like what if Lil Wayne and Flying Lotus made a track together? What would it sound like? Or what would it sound like if I had the power to, you know, convince this cat to work in these terms, just to see if you can flip it into something that. You can enjoy, I guess. I can enjoy. There are all these websites for aspiring hip-hop producers. Mm. And oftentimes they're talking about music. And and I notice that the extent to which the way they listen to music is influenced by um, the fact that they're thinking about it in terms of what it would sound like if they flipped it somehow. If they picked out some piece or some sound or some... And so they'll listen to country music in the hopes that they'll hear the perfect snare drum or something like that. Yeah. How is having your hands so deep in music and sounds and transforming things, how does that change the way that you listen to music? It's it's interesting you asked 
um, because I, I've been thinking about that recently, man, because I've been really enjoying just listening to records lately instead of trying to listen for samples. And I remember when I when I first started digging for records, I'd, I I wouldn't even really listen. I'd just like needle drop until I found the thing that was dope. I'm like, oh, okay, that's it. Loop that up. They don't even check out the rest of the tune. Just keep it moving. And I, I know a lot of people work that way. And um, but it, it's funny now because I listen to so many records without sampling them. And I I was just thinking about one today that I, I came across, and it has this really cool drum opening that I wasn't even thinking about because I was just so into the tune. So it's like it's got to be a, a little mix of both so I can keep working. But uh, you know, it's it's all inspiring, especially now that. Uh, I've been working with a lot of live musicians and live instrumentation as well. So, can you give me an example of a of a song maybe on the most recent record that that was different than you expected it to be because of a, a, a collaborator? The song "Pickled," the the uh, was it the second track on Cosmogramma? Yeah, that that was. Uh, I originally started that, you know, and uh, I made most of the track, and I I was pretty content with where it was at, and then. I remember hanging out with Thundercat one time, and uh, we were playing it, and he just started riffing on on uh, on the bass on some some parts, and I was like, "Wait a minute, are you serious? Let me just open these parts up, take out my bass line, and then you know flip some things that he was doing, and then it it, it totally changed on me, and it was a, a pleasant surprise, you know." So let's hear that song from my guest, Flying Lotus's third LP, Cosmogramma. <laughs> I read that your aunt, in part, inspired the name of this record. Yeah. Um, your aunt is uh, Alice Coltrane, the legendary uh, musician and um, 
uh, all around spiritual famous person. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, how did you how did you understand her as part of your life when you were uh, when you were a kid or, or a teenager? Auntie was was like our our pastor, our priest. You know, it was any kind of questions about life, spirituality. You could always ask Auntie, and she would always give you a very simple answer. It was like, oh, okay, right. I don't know why I didn't think of that. It makes so much sense. And um, it was I I knew her as that person more than the musician. You know, she. I'd, I'd hear her play music on, in her ashram on Sundays sometimes, and she'd play concerts maybe once a year or something. She'd never practice or anything at home. But, you know, I'd hear these things sometimes. And, you know, a lot of people would make a fuss about John Coltrane whenever they could when she was around, you know, and um, which is totally understandable. She understood, and she was very cool about it. So, and also she wasn't really making any records the majority of the time at I knew her, so um, I just knew her as the spiritual famous person, as you say, and um, I, I got a lot out of it in that sense. But you know, I think uh, I think right around when I went to college and stuff, I really started getting her into her records and and try to understand understand the music, and um, you know that that kind of stuff is like a lifelong journey understanding her music and. I feel like after she had passed and after my mom had passed away, I started to make more sense of it than I ever had. You know, like just hearing these songs that I heard for years and years, like they're brand new, you know, and trying to understand why why it's hitting me this way, why it connects in the way it does. And I, I felt like with the album I was making, I wanted to make sure that people felt that. You know, I wanted to go there with the sound and not necessarily something that was just, I guess about partying and all that is I feel like this that's the stuff that really stick with people you know what was there there that you wanted to go to just just go as far deep within as you can you know try and and give someone a, a, an experience through this music and instead of it just being like about you know toe tapping and and dancing around which is again no I'm not knocking that it's, it's a lot of fun but I think that one of my gifts is bringing someone a deeper experience with the music as well. And I, that's something I want to just, I'd, I'd rather do that. You know? Flying Lotus, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Flying Lotus. Check out any of his records. They're all great. If you think you have the stomach for it, his first ever feature film, Kuso, is out now. It's available through Apple and a couple of other platforms. Just don't download it and show it to your kids and then be like, oh, it was Jesse's fault that I did that. You know what you're getting into. Every week on Bullseye, we like to wrap up with a recommendation from me. I wrote this one last year, right after Fife Dog from A Tribe Called Quest died. Anyway, it's the outshot. Look, I'll tell you what. I, I don't want this to be or to become the memorial corner. 
comes off kind of phony after a while. But man, when Fife Dog died, that was tough. When I was a teenager, I used to have this stereo that I'd carry around, strapped to my bike sometimes. And Low End Theory, a Tribe Called Quest album, was always in there. Always. With the volume turned all the way up. When my little brother got old enough, I don't know, maybe he was 10, I got him a Tribe tape for his little boom box. Something special. Fife wasn't a super MC. He was a pretty ordinary MC in a lot of ways. But even though maybe it's a cliche to say it this way, Tribe wasn't Tribe without Fife Talk. Fife and Q-Tip were friends since they were three, and you felt it on every record that they made together. Tip was and is a cool guy, you know, kind of pretty and artsy. Fife was like your older brother in a baseball jersey, the one you'd do anything to hang out with. Fife was fun, and he liked sports, and he was always talking mess. Just always. He was your man. Here we go, yo! Fife was sick for a long time. Maybe he's at peace now. Maybe he's off somewhere capping on some saints or whatever. I hope he knew that he was still reverberating through hip-hop 25 years after he made his debut. I know I'll remember him and his work for the rest of my life. Like an old friend. Because in a way, that's what he was. And to top it off, Starks got ejected. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Our show recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Every summer, they have concerts at the Levitt Pavilion here in MacArthur Park. Uh, it is wonderful. Really great acts. Free shows in the park if you live in L.A. Can I recommend going to see Peanut Butter Wolf later this month? 
and you can enjoy MacArthur Park, a great civic treasure of Los Angeles. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Nick Liao. Our senior producer at MaxFun is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is by The Go Team. They provided it to us along with their label, Memphis Industries. Our thanks for that. And if you want to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free on our website, MaximumFun.org, in your favorite podcasting software, or now on the Bullseye YouTube channel. Just search for any show on YouTube, and you'll find the individual segments there in an easy-to-listen-to form. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We share all kinds of cool stuff, sneak previews of upcoming Bullseye guests, uh, that's all at facebook.com slash bullseye with Jesse Thorne. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.